I can't imagine that a tribunal which is set up by victors is going to be the right way to deal with any atrocities which may be committed uh, these days. Justice plays an important role. I consider this tribunal a false tribunal and indictments false indictments. Such abhorrent crimes must not go unpunished. Proceedings will be long and complex. All rise. Hi, I'm Stephanie van den Berg, and this is Asymmetrical Haircuts. And as always, I have my co-host, Janet Anderson, with me. Hi, Janet. Hi, Steph. We're going today to use the opportunity of a change at the top of one of the major institutions in the world in which we live to ask some broad questions about the state of international criminal law. Yes, and we're lucky to have Klaus Rackwitz, a German jurist, but so much more than that, join us to consider where we are as the ICC celebrates its 20th anniversary of coming into operation and the development of universal jurisdiction cases, which is rapidly growing. Not to mention that Nuremberg is also being talked about daily, well, almost daily, as a reference point for the potential for accountability with the invasion and the war in Ukraine. So welcome, Klaus. Good morning. Welcome to you. So for those who don't know you, uh, let's just do a quick potted summary of the high points of your career. I apologise if we've left anything important out, but you're currently the director of the Nuremberg Principals Academy. We'll find out a bit more about what that is soon. You're also on the advance team to prepare for the International Criminal Court in The Hague in 2002, and then the senior administrative manager of the Office of the Prosecutor. So there at the birth and during the first 10 years or so. And then you moved to Eurojust, it's a fascinating The Hague-based institution supporting EU member states in fighting against serious cross-border crimes like terrorism, cybercrime, human trafficking, but also war crimes prosecution. And we're seeing some of that now with a joint investigative team being assembled over Ukraine war crimes. So we have plenty to talk about. And we want to start with Ukraine. Um, now, uh, many discussions are centering on the Nuremberg model as an inspiration for an international tribunal on aggression. What are your thoughts about this kind of re-emergence of Nuremberg as the example to have? Well, there's two elements uh, to that. Uh, one, I think, uh, can indeed serve as a model, and that's the agreement of an international community that crimes committed uh, in the context of this armed conflict uh, should be prosecuted if they emerge to war crimes or crimes against humanity. What is not so fitting is the second element. Nuremberg was a tribunal established by the victors of a war. It was not a tribunal established uh, on common grounds or uh, on a large uh, community, but it was actually established by the four allied forces who won the war. And that is an element that I hope we will not see in uh, the context of the Ukraine situation. I can't imagine that a tribunal which is set up by victors is going to be the right way to deal with any atrocities which may be committed uh, these days. Those who won a war sit in court over others who lost the war. If you look at the, this claim of victor's justice for the Nuremberg uh, tribunals, how do you think that played out in in what happened at the tribunal do you still believe that it was do you think that it was in a way victor's justice or do you think that the uh, the trials that followed uh, balanced it out a bit more i think there's a difference between victor's justice and justice applied by winning parties i think it was rather the latter than the former victor's justice always has a smell of revenge and retaliation. And that is something that we do not see uh, in Nuremberg. On the contrary, if that would have been the case, it would have been the Churchill following uh, with his just line them up and shoot them. Uh, and you save a lot of time and money. It was rather the opposite. It was actually trying uh, to give also an audience uh, for those who were accused of the crimes to uh, talk about their motivation. I'm, I don't want to go down the rabbit hole too much of all the practicalities around what's being discussed at the moment, because I know there's there's a lot of discussion. But I, I'm just wondering specifically on the element of trials in absentia, which is what we saw, for example, with the special tribunal for Lebanon. Is that ever a sensible way forward in your view? In no way. In no way. I think it's one of the cardinal mistakes 
uh, and the construction mistake of the Lebanon Tribunal, and the colleagues will uh, not like to hear that. But I think a trial in absentia is actually a political statement, could also be a judicial statement, but it doesn't serve the purpose for which the tribunal was established, to assess and also to punish individual criminal guilt. Knowing that the whole trial will have to be redone uh, once ever an accused uh, is apprehended and brought before the court actually limits uh, the weight and the value of the exercise. Thus, it also can't set an example in, for instance, a deterring uh, way and is not something that heals uh, in so far. It is a great tool to actually make public that uh, crimes have been committed. It shows the world by a prosecutor who uh, lives up to the burden of proof. It is not just an allegation, but that they are underpinning facts and there are witnesses and other forms of evidence that uh, underpin uh, these allegations. It's just not uh, not only a claim, uh, but it's, it's, it's far more. But to, to what extent a judicial institution is supposed to do exactly that, that's a different question. I want to, we want to go in more uh, about the Nuremberg principles, but I also wonder why now with Ukraine do you think that Nuremberg is still the example? Because we've had the ICTY for the former Yugoslavia, we had the Rwanda Tribunal, we had the Sierra Leone Tribunal, we have Cambodia, we have all these international war crimes tribunals that are ongoing and even the ICC. And Why do you think everybody is harking back to Nuremberg as the example? I think the most important reason is that it's the first time that we are facing a concept that is not based on state responsibility. And that is a bit of a danger that I see now. These crimes that are committed or allegedly committed now are actually crimes uh, committed by individuals. But you hear and read a lot at the moment of uh, Russia being blamed as a state entity. And Russia will never be put in front of a court. And I think the procedure that was initiated before the International Court of Justice uh, in uh, The Hague, where, of course, Russia was a party and not Putin, not generals, not platoon commanders, but Russia as a whole uh, has made or created a lot of misperception in that context that uh, in a trial Russia would be the accused party. No, they are not. And in so far, I think the trial in The Hague before the International Court of Justice might have created some misperceptions. And Nuremberg makes it clear this is about individual personal criminal responsibility and not about the responsibility of a state, be it Germany at that time or Russia now. And this is why I think Nuremberg is uh, important. It's shared, of course, by the Yugoslav Tribunal, by the Rwanda Tribunal, and all by the ICC. But they, of course, are all direct successors in the line of Nuremberg. And without the Nuremberg principles, their charters would all have looked different. While we're still on Nuremberg, maybe we should mention exactly what the Nuremberg principles are. I'm sure you have this spiel completely to, to hands. You must have explained it many times, Klaus. What, is, what are the principles and why do they still matter? I think I did, and I'm always happy to do so because I think it's a fundamental development that goes far beyond an individual trial. What happened in 1946 was two things. One thing was the judgment of the International Military Tribunal on 30 September and 1 October, and the other thing was the first General Assembly of the United Nations in London, which took place a month later. So when the United Nations uh, convened for the first time in the General Assembly, they had already the judgment of Nuremberg on the table. And what they did is they said, wow, we have this judgment here and we have the charter establishing the court that led up to this judgment. Both documents, the judgment and the charter, contain great ideas which you would like to preserve uh, for the future. And uh, we affirm the principles that were actually stated in the charter and in the judgment. Well, that was one thing. And a year later, in 1947, the General Assembly realized, okay, maybe we should put some flesh to the bone and have somebody carving out these principles, making a text out of them. And they founded the International Law Commission, which still exists, and tasked the ILC to actually uh, draft uh, and uh, put wording into these principles, which happened then 
And those seven principles are very, very clear, are easy to understand. It's a role model for how law should be drafted, actually, not complicated and confusing, but making it very clear. That's what we have then since 1950, uh, these seven principles uh, which base on the judgment of Nuremberg. And whatever happened afterwards, uh, the, the Charter of the Yugoslav Tribunal, the Rwanda Tribunal, the Sierra Leone Court, Lebanon, and even the ICC is based on these principles. And in some of these charters, they actually literally repeated. The only, uh, the only downside of the whole thing is that the United Nations were never able to actually adopt them formally and make them part of the UN Charter. That was planned. That was the idea in 1947. But in 1950, when the text was ready, the Korean War had already started. The block building had already been underway. And thus, the major powers in the UN at that time simply put it on the back burner and they never put it on the front again, up until the time when the Security Council said we need to set up a court and use that principles as a basis for the Charter. Can you just walk us through the seven principles? Uh, there are seven of them, and they actually target also uh, the main excuses uh, that the perpetrators uh, that were accused in Nuremberg by the IMT brought forward. The first thing is uh, that any person who commits a crime that is listed in these principles is liable under international law. And that means it doesn't play a role, and the second principle picks up on that, it doesn't play a role whether your domestic law uh, maybe explicitly allow such a behavior. It may state whatever it wants to state or it remains silent. Nevertheless, because of the principles, you will be held individually crim uh, criminal responsible. One of the main excuses of the, the suspects in Nuremberg was uh, there was no uh, no law at that time. At nulla pena sine lege is a Roman law principle that we find around the world, uh, which was actually one of the main excuses. And uh, to eradicate this once and for all, the principles one and two start with making very clear it hits everybody and it doesn't matter what the internal laws say, you will be held responsible under international law. The third principle is again one that deals with, with a common excuse or a common line of defense. And it's actually one of the principles which are still today uh, heavily debated. It is the uh, liability, the criminal liability of heads of states. This was unheard before. It was, and it is still a principle that heads of states enjoy personal immunity that will make a, a trial against Putin a difficult one. But we may come to that later. And uh, the Nuremberg principles uh, make it very, very clear that every head of state uh, is and should be held accountable. This was challenged by al-Bashir. This was challenged uh, by others. Uh, this was a uh, subject of negotiations uh, even before the appeals chamber of the ICC. It's actually a discussion in the Sixth Committee of the United Nations, uh, and, and quite a heavy one, uh, with an open end, whether uh, uh, this uh, immunity for war crimes and crimes against humanity should be suspended, limited, uh, reduced, or even abolished. And there is no clear line, but the principle is uh, clear about that. The fourth principle is targeting the next excuse, and that is, I have been under orders, I just followed my orders, which is understandable. If I, if I were a soldier, that would be my first line of, of uh, defense. And the principle four says that this is not an excuse, provided that a moral choice was available at that time, in fact, possible uh, to uh, the perpetrator at that time, which, of course, puts the bar quite high. I mean, if you are a soldier in a platoon and your platoon commander says, shoot that prisoner of war or I shoot you, there is not much, there is not much choice uh, that uh, you have. Then principle five states that anyone charged before a tribunal or, or a court has a right of uh, a fair trial and a full defense. This is uh, very much held up by the international courts, uh, which go far beyond what you can expect if you are a defense lawyer under domestic system. And uh, in so far, you are privileged. Uh, and then principle six is uh, actually uh, the one that defines the crimes. That's the source of, for instance, Article 7 and 8 of uh, the Rome Statute, uh, which uh, is a crimes against peace, 
nowadays crime against humanities. Then we have war crimes in the classical uh, sense, uh, meaning violating the laws of uh, uh, the customs of war. This is, of course, mostly the four Geneva Conventions and uh, their additional protocols. And then you have the crimes against humanity, which tackle uh, those uh, large-scale uh, crimes uh, directed against the civilian population, which we know them now. In the Nuremberg trials, uh, I think, and in the Nuremberg principles, it's limited to crimes against humanity uh, committed in the context of an armed conflict. We have overcome that now. Crimes against humanity are always punishable, but the, the essence uh, and uh, the main types of crimes are already enshrined in principle six. And this is what you find partially, literally, in the tribunal statutes and also in uh, the other court statutes. And the seventh and last principle makes clear that complicity, aiding and abetting and all these things uh, lead to punishment as well as uh, the act of the crime itself. So this is very straightforward, very clear. It covers all excuses. Sorry, I was under command. No, I'm a head of state. Uh, no, there was no law at that time when I committed these crimes. It makes it clear that you, you should forget about that doesn't matter whether there's a law, uh, there will be a trial. And this, I think, is, is a fundamental achievement. If that would have gone into uh, the UN Charter, say, as a part of Chapter 7 or Chapter 7 bis or something like that, with a meaningful court and UN Security Council-backed uh, uh, peacekeeping forces that enforce the law when necessary, we would, we would be a huge step further, and it would certainly be a much higher threshold for someone like Putin before uh, you make the decision to go to war. And do you think that these uh, Nuremberg gets simplified too much in the in the current debate about what tribunals should be like? Do you think that people grasp what Nuremberg was? I don't think there's a need for them to do that, but they grasp the idea. People who commit war crimes should be brought before a court. That's that's the essence. There is no, sorry, it was a war, and after the war we forget about each other's atrocities. That was more or less the rule uh, uh, over centuries. Uh, uh, but but there is a court. There will be a court dealing with you uh, individually. Uh, and the only thing that uh, we need to raise awareness of, there is not uh, not Russia is sitting there. We can't punish the Russian population for what Putin is doing, and that we need to bring uh, those to justice who actually order the crimes and commit the crimes. And that m must be made clear, this is not Russia. These are individual persons uh, in the Russian hierarchy that actually commit and are responsible for these crimes. It's not Russia that should be accused. And Nuremberg uh, supports this idea. No, it wasn't Germany. It was Göring, it was Bormann, it was Ribbentrop, it was Keitel, and all the others who were facing uh, the charges and had to, uh, to uh, speak to the judges. Well, while you read a lot of those German names, I just want to hark back. Uh, you said uh, when we were talking about state immunity, you mentioned al-Bashir. And just for those people who are not au fait with all the world's dictators, I just want to say that Klaus was talking about, of course, the former Sudanese president, Omar al-Bashir, who was has an arrest warrant for genocide. And some states before the ICC who didn't want to arrest him tried to argue that he had head of state immunity. Let's um, pick up on the ICC now. It's 20 years since uh, 60 states signed up and the ICC kind of bounced into existence. And you were there right at the beginning. Can you help to describe what it was like in those first years in the trenches? It was an enormous positive spirit. I've never experienced such a positive spirit uh, ever in my professional uh, career. And I'm a kind of a startup junkie. So whenever something new comes up uh, in my field of work, I would like to be part of that. Uh, one example is, for instance, I spent uh, quite some time in the eastern uh, states of Germany after the reunification, just helping building up uh, a new judiciary. Also there, you had a lot of, of, of positive spirit and startup, but at the same time, you had already quite uh, an amount of negative spirit, or now they are coming as the victors, uh, as if we would have done everything wrong for the last 40 years. How dare they to judge us uh, in that way? So it was a mix uh, of a very positive, uh, let's do something new, and uh, some some negative vibes as well. While the RCC was extremely positive, 
uh, not only uh, the people, the team that came together there, it was also uh, the way the ICC was received. I remember uh, in the first years uh, uh, when we came to New York for the General Assembly in 2003, for instance, we couldn't even save ourselves from all these invitations, receptions that they organized in our honor. And we were a small team of uh, maybe 10 people uh, who were there. Uh, the judges uh, were just been sworn in and were waiting for the first uh, first cases. Uh, Luis Moreno Campo made his first appearances as a prosecutor. And of course, he had a, a very specific personality. So I remember being with him in a press conference that he gave on the UN uh, headquarters site and journalists were asking him, what are you doing? What are your plans? And he was saying, well, one of my first targets is, is going to be the beers. Uh, because uh, actually their blood diamond business is one of the major drivers uh, of these crimes committed on African soil. And it was amazing, uh, the reactions uh, to that. Many people looked quite angry and were angry about it. But uh, Moreno Ocampo was a bit like Houdini. He turned them around uh, with 15 minutes talk. And at the end of the, his speech, there was almost agreement that this would be the right way to do, that you can't only punish those who shoot, but also those who buy the guns and pay for the ammunition. And I think that is still a valid point that we see now emerging again when we talk about ancillary crimes, when we talk about the nexus between crimes against humanity and war crimes and large-scale organized crimes like drug trafficking, uh, trafficking of human beings, arms trafficking, uh, illegal exploitation of rare earths and things like that, that there is a clear nexus uh, between the economic side and uh, the crimes. The Lundi case in Sweden, the Lafarge case in France, I think these are live examples that what Ocampo, maybe as a kind of visionary, uh, was talking about in 2003, is now actually what's happening on the ground. And insofar, it was really, really a fantastic, uh, a fantastic time, uh, and people were working around the clock there were no hierarchies, uh, there were no enemies, uh, there was no backstabbing. It was just a very, very positive uh, mood uh, that uh, affected everybody. And it was one of the greatest experiences I ever had, uh, that you work in an institution, a judicial institution, which normally is hated by 50%, namely the losing parties, but it was actually loved by everyone. It sounds like it was a lot of fun, but I, I'm wondering whether kind of that sense of how new and interesting and positive this whole experience was also helped to kind of sow the seeds of the disillusion that came later around the ICC, that because there were such high expectations around it and it felt like it could do anything, but it actually, you know, decisions had to be made, what kind of model it was going to be based on, how how it was going to operate, how much money it was going to need, etc., etc. And reality hit, though, didn't it? Yes, it did. And there was little that the court uh, could actually do to find its own way in an unbiased manner. Very early in the discussion already, uh, it was almost clear, it was assumed by many players uh, of the advanced team that the whole ICC should follow the models of the ad hoc tribunals. And the first thing the ICC did uh, was adopting the UN bureaucracy. Well, in hindsight, uh, uh, I think there was hardly any other way because some bureaucracy was needed, some financial rules need to be established, uh, some rules should govern the human resources uh, area. The UN uh, was uh, a smart thing uh, insofar it was existing and had to be proven to function. That was uh, the good thing. Secondly, you found people easily who could apply it, but they also adopted the downside. They also adopted this huge bureaucracy, this desire uh, to be overly perfect. Uh, this came to the court and I had personally, uh, an incident, I must say, for which I had to apologize when I came to a colleague who was in charge of logistics, and I said, we are going to, on the first missions. I need some blank DVDs that we can make some recordings in the field. That was in the context of the Uganda situation, the first one. And a colleague said, oh, sorry, I don't have these, uh, the, these DVDs. And I said, but behind you on the shelf, I see 20 packs say, well, that's for the court. That's not for the field operations. That's a different budget line. And I yelled at him. 
I couldn't believe it that the court is embarking on its first mission ever that we have a referral from the Ugandan government that we have a case that uh, we are making the first reconnaissance missions and the bureaucrat tells me oh, well, I have blank CBD DVDs uh, in brackets which we don't have any use for at the moment but I don't give uh, them to you because you're a different major program in the budget. These are things uh, inherited from the UN bureaucracy, which I think the court could have avoided. And there was actually a cultural clash at the beginning. Many people said, let's forget about this UN bureaucracy. It only hampers us. And we had quite hostile discussions in the ICC about that. And uh, that also spilled over then to the judicial part. And you see it today. It's for me one of the reasons why the proceedings at the ICC are so complicated. You can scrutinize the entire Rome Statute and the whole rules of procedure and evidence. You don't find anything about a prosecution and a defense case. This is the American practice which was established at the ICTY and was taken over more or less without questioning it. You don't find things like a no case to answer procedure that has actually eaten up month and month before the ICC. It's inherited and brought forward by those who came from the ad hoc tribunals. We were not able, simply because there was way too much to do at that time, way too many tasks at the same time, to, to, to split the good things from those things you should better not take over. We managed it in the field of the information technology, and I think this was already a huge step forward that we did not follow the IT model of the ICTY and the ICTR. So I think that paid off. But many other things uh, were taken over more or less in an unreflected fashion, and uh, the court was not able and didn't have the time or the power to separate itself enough from an existing bureaucracy, uh, actually uh, uh, using the good things without uh, also buying those things you better do not want to have in your organization. If you look at the ICC now, there's been years of budget squeeze. Every year there's a new fight over the budget and every year they get less than they actually ask for. We have the Office of the Prosecutor saying they simply don't have enough funds to carry out all the investigations they have. How do you see now the court operating the ICC? Is it operating as it should? Well, it is operating as it should. Whether it's operating as it could is a different question. That has also uh, its roots uh, in what I just uh, referred to. There are some things uh, in the ICC which we simply have to accept. You can't save, save travel costs by just saying I fly low-cost airlines and I do not apply the UN travel rules uh, simply because you would not find uh, uh, sufficient qualified staff that are work, uh, accepting to work under second-class uh, uh, economic conditions. That That's one pillar of it. Uh, the second thing, every court in the world uh, has uh, to make choices. There is no prosecution office in the world that has unlimited resources and can go for every case. And I see this uh, very clearly in my in my German own judiciary, where uh, I started as a judge. Uh, uh, of course, uh, the prosecution doesn't have a fixed budget in a sense that they are not able to pick up more cases. And if uh, you need uh, to have an expert's opinion that costs 2 million euros uh, uh, to solve a particular question in a case, it would never be answered if we don't have budget for that. But you still have uh, endless re uh, ending resources. You still have a certain number of staff and they can work all day and they can take the night on top, but then the resources is consumed. And that, I think, is 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 uh, what limits uh, the ICC at the moment. It's not so much uh, uh, the money. It's not uh, so much that. It's that the ICC has reached a size now, including the office of the prosecutor, that it comes to its maximum. If you want to go beyond, you have to split the court. You have to set up two branches, maybe with a headquarter, maybe with the governing body on board, uh, but a prosecution office with 1,000 staff members working on five continents, which means 24-7 because of the time zone difference, is not manageable. And everybody who tells you it is, is wrong. You would have to start uh, opening regional branches. You would have to delegate authority. And those discussions had been made in a quite early stage at the ICC, should we open a satellite court in Africa? And that was the same time zone. 
and that's for me one of the biggest problems is the time zone. Uh, and uh, but it was never actually uh, pursued in a way. And uh, the the downside is that states never uh, actually were forced to answer the question: What does international justice really cost? And it's far more expensive uh, than uh, than uh, the money they spend today for international courts. But we see now with Ukraine, there is kind of money being thrown at the OTP for the Ukraine investigation, uh, which means they have a lot more resources to kind of investigate this. Do you feel there's a risk of justice a la carte with lots of money for Ukraine? So that is going to be investigated and prosecuted. Not so much money for Sudan, Georgia, even all these cases that are they're lingering. No, I don't think so. And I'm not going uh, to believe that this is going to happen. And the situation is not new. When the Security Council of the United Nations uh, referred the Darfur situation to the court, when that happened uh, and the prosecutor faced the challenge of the Darfur uh, investigation, we got the same. We got extra money for Arabic software. We got extra money for extra stuff. It was the same situation uh, that uh, we had. It was far less visible because uh, the whole the whole uh, trial was was uh, far less visible and that is a fundamental difference the ukraine situation the ukraine war is the first one in the history of the world where on the second day of the hostilities uh, the chief prosecutor of an international court opens an investigation actually at the same time even at the yugoslav tribunal there was a time difference between the start of the investigations and the commitment of the crimes. We have, we are now actually in a real-time scenario here that with the start of the war, investigations have started. And this is such a huge step forward uh, for mankind and in general. This will, will never go back to, yeah, let fight, let's them fight and then wait, let's pick up the pieces uh, at the end of the day. This, I think, uh, has brought a new culture uh, to it, and I think it is this new culture that also motivates people uh, to give uh, money. Yes, of course, the prosecutor is faced with new language challenges and many others, but money alone, as I said earlier, is not going to do the trick. Just a small sidebar um, on the ICC. I'm wondering also what your thoughts are, Klaus, on the crime of aggression within the ICC and the way that that was set up um, at the it was the 10-year conference after the initial establishment of the court and then very intense discussions. And it's very, very, very limited, which is why we've ended up with this discussion around having a special tribunal uh, on aggression for Ukraine. I mean, how how do you do you see any way of, I don't know, fixing that problem at the ICC to enable the ICC to how to play a, a better role um, on prosecuting the, right, the crime of aggression? That's not a problem of the ICC. That's a problem of the states. And I have been in Kampala myself, so I was able to witness uh, those discussions where even close friends to the ICC made it very clear you will not get more than this, what is then uh, called the Kampala Compromise uh, that came out of that. And I think I think uh, the reason is... is uh, that uh, even uh, for peaceful and like-minded states, it's difficult to really uh, digest and uh, accept that war is not an option anymore under no circumstances. And the crime of aggression, if you would implement it in full, would take away that opportunity. Not even Article 38, I think it is, that defines aggression uh, in the UN Charter. Uh, it's also more or less vague. Uh, it, and and uh, I think... This, this absolutely prohibition of, of uh, armed force as a means of, of dispute solution, that is something that states are, from my point of view, not yet ready. Mankind is not yet ready to forget about the idea uh, that uh, force, the, the use of force can be uh, in no way a good thing, that the use of force is always a bad thing. And uh, in a treaty-based uh, court like the ICC, it's even more difficult. This is why you have that situation that uh, the Ukraine, having accepted uh, the court's jurisdiction, is uh, uh, not a territory on which you can apply uh, the crime of aggression, because uh, this applies only to states' parties. Uh, and while 
on the territory of the Ukraine, currently Russian nationals, uh, yes, they can be charged and prosecuted for war crimes and crimes against humanity, although Russia is not a party to the Rome Statute, simply because they commit the crimes on the territory uh, of a country that accepts the jurisdiction. This would not apply for the uh, crime of aggression. That can only be applied against individuals from a state party that has accepted uh, the crime of aggression, uh, and uh, this this limits uh, the whole uh, the whole uh, idea uh, of a crime of aggression uh, manifestly, I would say. And I'm not sure whether this is a bad or a good thing, because still the Security Council of the United Nations would have the means to refer any of these cases, or including the crime of aggression, uh, to uh, the ICC if they only wanted to. For me. Uh, the much more important debate is, are we able uh, to put an end uh, to veto powers in cases of international criminal law? That, for me, is a discussion which is far more important. And I think as soon as that is 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 uh, uh, implemented, as soon as we know, no, you cannot stop investigations or prosecutions by saying veto uh, in the Security Council uh, regarding any matter. It will also uh, change the approach to the crime of aggression. So these two things are clearly interlinked to each other. Those who were uh, hardliners in Kampala, I must give them credit in one point. If it's only the United Nations constituting whether we have an act of aggression, then who is uh, uh, allowed uh, to, to establish whether there's a crime of aggression? In other words, can you have a crime of aggression without an act of aggression in the sense of the United Nations Charter? And many who were favoring the UN security solution, uh, the, the so-called traffic light solution for the crime of ag aggression have a point in that. So, so we need to cover both of these areas. We cannot push the responsibility to a treaty body like the ICC and the rest says, yeah, it's now a matter of the ICC. It's a matter of the United Nations, definitely. Now let's turn away from the UN and the ICC for a bit and turn to states' own prosecution of international crimes. This is something that has increased dramatically in recent years. Germany is at the forefront of that. Famously, there are several Syria prosecutions, including the Anwar R trial, a uh, senior uh, official of the Syrian regime uh, on trial uh, or now even convicted for torture uh, in the Syrian prison system. And this is all done under what is known as universal jurisdiction. Would you agree that the German decision to put real resources into structural investigations has made a very big difference in these uh, German cases? I, I mean, there's a fundamental policy change uh, in Germany that we notice. Uh, the tool of universal jurisdiction and the opportunities uh, uh, existed already since 2002 when Germany implemented uh, the Rome Statute in national law with the so-called Völkerstrafgesetzbuch, uh, the Code on International Criminal Crimes in uh, Germany. But in the first years, every criminal complaint, every hint to a case uh, was uh, rejected uh, on grounds of a specific provision in the German procedural code that allows to defer or to suspend or to close investigations if uh, they have no nexus to Germany uh, or if uh, there is no practical means for the prosecutor uh, to actually uh, investigate and prosecute the cases. The most famous instance was certainly the complaint against Donald Rumsfeld that the federal prosecutor received lodged uh, by Wolfgang Kalek at the European Center for Constitutional and Human Rights. Uh, and uh, it was a very well-drafted criminal complaint, which was waved away with one sentence. Uh, and that changed, I would say, in 2007, uh, when after 2007, finally, uh, the prosecutor general opened a special war crimes branch. And they started with two people. I think it's now 20 or 25 people working on these cases. So it's a tremendous increase far larger than in other, uh, any other uh, area of specialized uh, or uh, large-scale uh, crimes. Uh, and that shows that uh, this is uh, indeed taken seriously. Germany is in so far in uh, a good position that uh, many perpetrators, uh, many bad apples, choose uh, to uh, try to hide in Germany as uh, refugees. 
in the same way as after the Second World War, German perpetrators hid as refugees in other countries. I think the Germans learned their lesson, and they're not letting uh, uh, these people get away. But whenever we have a chance to get them, uh, they are uh, actually prosecuted and tried. Um, we do see this growing movement. I mean, it's not only Germany, it's a across Europe. And we know also in other places like Argentina, universal jurisdiction cases. But I'm a bit worried and I wonder whether you are that this kind of feels like a bit of a stopgap. I mean, it's it, individual cases are all good, um, but it's a bit kind of symbolic and it's not dealing with the fundamental accountability issues for a place like Syria. Um, how how do you see this? Um, what's the balance, do you think, where where we should be? Should we be lobbying harder for broader accountability or celebrating universal jurisdiction? I think you can do the one without leaving out the other. Uh, and the reason for that is that uh, for both tasks, you would have different players on the field. It's not the prosecutor general's uh, uh, task to lobby. It's the prosecutor general's task to investigate and prosecute crimes. And that's what they're doing. They have no mandate and they shouldn't be lobbying. Who should be lobbying is the German Foreign Office uh, and others who are in the multilateral uh, discussions involved. And they do that, whether they do this tough enough or strong enough or loud enough, that's a different question. And uh, that is a pressure that hopefully will come from the voters one day. They simply say it's fine that uh, you have a prosecutor general who investigates and prosecutes crimes uh, to the extent possible in Germany. Uh, but can you please do also your part of that? And not just say, well, we are doing that and that's it. No, there's more to it. And that requires also a similar engagement on the multilateral level uh, in order to support these things. Uh, there have been attempts to do that. But of course, now the Ukraine war is a big setback and we will see how the development goes after that. I think we will see and we see already more uh, more engagement. Uh, it's not only Germany uh, opening uh, cases, it's Lithuania, it's Poland, it's other countries, uh, and and uh, they all uh, want to cooperate. But maybe back to Germany, certainly one, one driver in uh, the force uh, was uh, the case against the FDLR in uh, the DRC uh, a militia that had uh, alleged perpetrators uh, on German territory, but also in other countries. And while the ICC was able to arrest uh, one of the former leaders of uh, this militia group in Paris, if I'm not mistaken, uh, others were apprehended and arrested in Germany. And they were brought to trial before the Stuttgart uh, court. Uh, and while uh, the, the ICC case collapsed and Barshimana was acquitted, uh, the counterpart in Germany was actually uh, convicted, so it showed that that uh, the 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 German efforts uh, were actually uh, far more reaching uh, than uh, the ICC. But the, the, that was not only the result of uh, the German prosecutors being better, by far not. They also had the opportunity to convict not only uh, of war crimes and crimes against humanity, but also of terrorism charges. Uh, which uh, were punishable under German law at that time already. And that is, of course, a great escape that you can have if uh, you manage uh, to convict for terrorism uh, simply because uh, you don't have enough evidence for war crime. Uh, we'll certainly link to those cases in the Democratic Republic of Congo in the show notes. I wanted to circle back to Ukraine one last time, and you already mentioned it, because now we have other uh, countries like Lithuania and Poland uh, opening their own universal jurisdiction cases, uh, investigations into Ukraine. And now the International Criminal Court has joined the joint investigation team set up by the other organization you worked for, uh, Eurojust. And they're all gathering evidence or they're trying to gather evidence. What challenges do you see here? All these different people all looking at the same crimes. How is that going to be coordinated? And can the ICC, can it be the ICC? Should it be the ICC? Should it be Eurojust? Where are the challenges in, in all these things going on at the same time? 
Well, it depends what uh, you are actually going to coordinate. You certainly need to coordinate uh, the activities on the ground. We can't have a situation where a traumatized victim of a Russian attack in Ukraine is interviewed by Lithuanian prosecutors a week later by Polish, uh, then German, and uh, finally by the ICC prosecutors. Uh, so someone has to coordinate these practical things, and, and uh, Eurojust is quite good in these things they do this with and have done that with thousands of cases in other fields and those more mechanical uh, things are well established and uh, well approved eurojust's uh, big advantage is that they have the resources to cover uh, and to bridge all communication uh, difficulties uh, the, the biggest portion of the operational expenses at eurojust is money for uh, interpreters uh, during meetings to make sure that the Lithuanian prosecutor can talk with his Portuguese colleague, uh, which is which is normally uh, really a showstopper in uh, international judicial cooperation, because police officers, not all, and certainly not in all countries, speak English uh, or French or another widely recognized language. So facilitating that is one thing. Second thing is uh, choosing the right forum. Of course, if you can, if you have a choice. You would always choose uh, the forum that provides uh, for uh, most of the options in terms of, of uh, uh, the prosecution of a case, which means uh, you would look, for instance, uh, uh, is there something uh, on Lithuanian uh, soil uh, that restricts a prosecution? Do they have a different different regime, ratione tempore, for instance, or are there other other obstacles? Uh, so this, uh, what some people call forum shopping, is I think legitimate uh, when you choose the, the best option uh, to achieve to achieve justice uh, for the victims. Uh, so you need to coordinate uh, in legal terms uh, who uh, investigates what crime. Uh, you need uh, to organize uh, the mechanics. You need to make sure that the results are shared. So whatever a Lithuanian prosecutor may gather. Uh, and that could be somebody that deflects from the Russian government and finds his or her way into Lithuania easier than into Germany or something else, because uh, Russia is widely spoken. You can uh, very nicely hide as a Russian in Lithuania without being targeted. So uh, the chances that someone is ending up there, uh, but uh, what, whatever that person then uh, as a as a witness uh, says, needs to be made available uh, to all the others. There should be no rivalry. That's the most important thing. It's not about who had the better system. It's not about who has the smarter investigators or the more sophisticated legal officers. It's really sharing uh, the burden and uh, without any preference to any of the solution uh, in full transparency, sharing uh, uh, the work. If that's going to be achieved, if there is no, uh, but we are the ICC, we are better, or no, it's us because we speak the languages, whatever it is, uh, everybody needs to overcome his or her prejudices and, and practices that we see from the past, then this can truly be a, be a success. We've just run out of time, unfortunately, in terms of um, doing our interview, because I feel we could talk to you a lot longer. But we always have our regular asymmetrical haircuts questions. So I get to ask the first one, which is, what didn't we ask you, but we should have asked you? Uh, but with regard to the European Union and, and Eurojust, certainly the question, why is the EU so reluctant uh, to uh, uh, to uh, submit uh, sovereignty to a supranational level? They give away their military power to the NATO. They give away their financial power to the European Central Bank. But they are not uh, to release a millimeter of criminal justice or police competency. Why is that so? And I can't answer that question. But it was it has driven me all these years. Uh, you are so cooperative, uh, uh, but in the area of criminal justice, uh, uh, you, you really stick to your national approach. And our next asymmetrical haircuts question is: You have seen so many cases and trials pass by. Do you have a favorite? case or trial that was um, significant to you in a way that, that that stands out in a way that others don't? What I admire at the moment uh, is the trial against Dominic Ongwen, one of the very early suspects of uh, the uh, ICC, uh, which uh, is a case that faces so enormously 
severe language problems uh, with uh, an accused that speaks a rare dialect, namely a Choli, uh, for which uh, the uh, uh, resources for translation are limited. And it doesn't matter. It, they will translate a 1,200-page judgment into a Choli with a few resources that they have. They don't give up. And this is, this is something that I find very, very positive. Be the obstacles as big as they are? Are the problems as big as they are? What do we do uh, in the uh, Al-Rahman case, for instance, the Ali Kushayb case, if uh, suddenly a witness appears who only speaks four? That is not even existing in writing a language. How do you pr produce a transcript in a language that does only exist orally? But the ICC takes on all these challenges, and that is what I what I like. And what Fatou Bensouda always has said, without fear or favor, I think this applies really here, and that's what I like. It's much, much, much more difficult than convicting somebody who has French as or English as the first language. And our final question is to ask you, what are you reading at the moment you might like to share, listening to, watching? In one of your answers, you were talking about the difficulty of there being a joint European um, police force and that kind of thing. And, and, and you see a lot of dramas on television based on the idea that there's some kind of super police around, like I think one's called Crossing Lines or things like that. Do you ever watch silly dramas like that, Klaus, or do you want to give us a really intellectual book that, that you've been reading <laughs> recently? I'm a great John Grisham fan, so I like his judicial novels. In particular, I like his very, very subtle fight against the death penalty, which is amazing. Uh, so that is more of the of the trivial uh, nature. Uh, but there are some of uh, a few great German authors who also describe have uh, their stories playing uh, in uh, a judicial uh, field, there's this wonderful Heinrich Spörl, a German author, uh, that wrote a fantastic novel about a prosecutor who commits a crime while he's totally drunk, doesn't remember, and is tasked to, to, to find himself, actually. So he's chasing himself, and it's, it's, it's beautiful. And then we have Erich Kästner. Erich Kästner also was a lawyer, and, and he actually uh, said something which motivated me uh, to, to study law. I always wanted to become a lawyer in private practice. That was the plan. I never planned ending up where I ended up. And Erich Kästner says the beauty of uh, the, the attorneys, uh, the lawyers' uh, situation is so wonderfully single-sided. You just do what your client asks you. You don't look what's right or wrong. You fight for your client. And that is something that I really enjoy. So uh, that's something uh, which is uh, a bit more a bit more uh, niveau, but uh, yeah, I, I like to, to watch TV. If there is a good, a great uh, courtroom series, for instance, I would, I would watch it. Uh, the downside is that we don't have a German courtroom uh, culture uh, in, in terms of broadcasting. So you are, you are stuck to the, to the American uh, uh, English system where you have to convince a jury of laypersons and not a professional. I find it far more challenging to convince a bench of professional judges uh, who might be in the trenches for 25 years. You can't tell them stories as easy as you can tell them to a person that is the first time involved in judging uh, a criminal behavior. Well, Klaus, thank you so much. It's been uh, a great fun to talk to you. I thought it was very interesting. Uh, and you have a very wide breadth of experience that links to all the things that we like to talk about on asymmetrical haircuts. So thank you very much. This podcast was created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. You can find show notes and additional blogs on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. It is recorded in the Hague Humanity Hub, home to a community of innovators in the field of peace, justice, development and humanitarian action. Music is by audionautics.com and the show is available on every major podcast service. So please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word.